Welcome to the latest episode of High Stakes. I'm Paige Soya, Managing Director of K Street Capital. And today's episode is going to be about NFTs, blockchain, and Web3, and the current environment around those things, both in the U.S. and abroad. And we have the most perfect group of people here to talk about this. We have one of our investors, Amanda Wick, who's also the CEO founder of the Association for Women's Cryptocurrencies. And then we have one of our founders, our founder CEOs, Robbie Greenfield, who's the founder of one of our portfolio companies in the space, and Chris Brummer, who has his own very successful podcast, um, Fintech Beat. So before we jump into this stuff, maybe we'll do a couple of the intros. So Chris, let's start with you, actually. Uh, I'm a professor at Georgetown. I teach financial regulation, securities regulation, financial technology and the law. I advise lots of different companies and I'm on the boards of a couple of, of financial institutions from Fannie Mae to some startups. And most importantly, I count myself as a friend of both Robbie and Amanda. And Paige, hopefully. Ah, a little. <laughs> Amanda, um, we'll do Amanda and then, and then Robbie. So I'm Amanda Wick. I'm the founder and CEO of the Association for Women in Cryptocurrency. Uh, I was a prosecutor at DOJ for nearly a decade. Now I got into crypto investigating crypto money laundering cases starting back in, I think, 2013. Did a stint at FinCEN as a senior policy advisor, chief of legal affairs at Chainalysis, served as the financial lead financial investigator for the January 6th committee, and then decided to do something that would make me truly, truly happy in life which was start a nonprofit association that is really working towards building inclusion, which I know is something also near and dear to Chris's heart, building inclusion of women in the future of digital finance in a way that, frankly, I think most of us feel traditional finance didn't do the best job at. So if we're going to build better, we'd like to build it more inclusively. And that's what we work at at the association. And I'm super excited to be here also because one of my causes near and dear to my heart is getting more women involved in venture capital, which I know Paige is a huge champion of and super excited to be involved in Street Capital. Awesome. Thanks, Amanda. Glad you're here. And uh, Robbie. Uh, hey, everyone. Appreciate being here. My name is Robbie Greenfield, co-founder of Woja Labs. Um, bit of background, over a decade as a financial engineer, started off at Goldman Sachs. I've also worked at Amazon and was previously the head of social impact at Consensus. Uh, where effectively just focused on deploying decentralized applications across around 17 emerging markets, mostly Sub-Saharan Africa and uh, the Asia Pacific, and usually with social sector entities like multinational NGOs, UN agencies. Um, and now in our work with Moja, we both deployed blockchain-based humanitarian aid programs with Oxfam, Save the Children, uh, most of the large multinational NGOs, but now are starting to uh, extend into MSME financing as well. And uh, that's it. Very cool. Well, we'll get into that a little bit more in a second. But because we have such a broad audience, I want to do a little bit of education first. So feel free to jump in, anyone here. I'd like to us to define NFTs, blockchain, and Web3, how they relate to each other and how they relate to crypto. I mean, I feel like the definition should go to the professor first, but Chris, you, you want to take first stab or... <laughs> You know, uh, number one, so my job is largely to ask people, well, what do you think? And then, uh, well, through Socratic reasoning, you know, I can, can ask that. But, you know, obviously, I tend to think about NFTs as, you know, as the digitized representation of ownership, perhaps of a real world asset, depending on the circumstances like like art or music. 
and where that representation is stored on a blockchain. And as a result, it creates a kind of potentially a kind of digital uniqueness, right? It's, it's creating a kind of unique value to something that is ordinarily very challenging to do on the internet. And as a result, there are different kinds of use cases and applications for NFTs ranging from the kind of bored apes NFTs that people are normally familiar with to even applications of NFTs for compliance purposes, uh, for audit trails, for creating the backbone of digital identities that can be used for any number of different transactions, which hopefully is something that we can get into a little bit later. But uh, ultimately, uh, that's my conception of what an NFT is. And I'll have the the real experts sort of speak to what they think about it from a more technical standpoint. I guess I'll follow that up. I mean, I, I think Chris's definition is very apt. I mean, digital representation of real world assets that aren't as easily fractionally divided, you know, I, I think would be my simplest definition. And obviously, you know, we've seen this a lot in collectibles, you know, Pokemon cards, I mean, you name it, you know, pretty much any type of thing that has some type of cultural impact. And then also new things that have brought new cultural impact that didn't exist before, like board up apes. But I think what's really interesting is we're starting to get into, we're starting to get into an age in which we're starting to see new types of NFTs, right? So start with digital collectibles and cultural assets that we all kind of like, you know, geek out over, make memes out about, hopefully get rich off of. But now it's transforming into, I think, more meaningful things like, you know, an instantiation for, for credit or you know, for regulatory licensing, like I've talked with Chris. And I, I think that that shows a lot of maturation in the market. So it can be many things. Yeah, I will say for so long, the success or failure of my career depended on the ability to explain these very complex topics to 12 people in a jury box who might or might not have any kind of educational background. So for me, when I think about these things, I tend to think about them like super basically and generally in analogy. So essentially for the last, I don't know how many years, most of finance has been ledgers inside of a bank or data has been stored inside of a company like an Amazon or Google. And when you're talking about blockchain, distributed ledger technology, all of these things, it's the idea of what if it wasn't that way? What if instead of it being completely centralized, what if it was decentralized? Right. So whether it's Web3 and the concept of all of that data being decentralized and all of us having a lot more control over our data and us possessing it instead of in crypto, say a Coinbase or in data, say a Google, what if it was distributed around? And there's so many things that you can do with that, right? Um, if the data is distributed. But then the other issue that's really cool from that is that you can actually have finances that are associated with that. And that's cryptocurrency, right? The beauty of disintermediated finance and my ability to send funds to Chris anywhere we are in the world without having an intermediary in between was a revolutionary invention, right? When, when, when the Bitcoin white paper came out. So when you take all these things, people talk about layers and they're usually talking about protocols, but in my head, they're all kinds of layers. Of, and, and Chris mentioned even earlier, NFTs and the use for digital identity. You're thinking about layers of what does the future of digital finance and technology look like? And that's why futurists and technologists like Chris and, and Robbie are super important. But all of those things kind of weave into one of those pictures, like a like a puzzle, like one of those old pictures where it slowly gets sharper and sharper as you figure things out. And each of these uh, blockchain, crypto, NFTs, they're all kind of like technological pieces of a puzzle that answers the question of what will digital finance look like in the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years? And I think that's uh, like 
lead into kind of why we're all excited about it is what we think is really important now might just be the next year of, of digital finance down the road. And we have to get through this to get through there, but you have to understand it to kind of get down the road to Spotify, right? I love that analogy. Oh, go ahead, Chris. I mean, like ultimately you can think of an NFT as the digital representation of value on a blockchain, right? And, you know, what is defined as value can be very context specific. It can be value in the form of ownership, right, of something. It can be a representation of a real world asset that itself can have value. It can be the representation itself that kind of reflects on itself, a kind of a crypto asset that has its own in inherent value or uh, use case in a digital ecosystem. But the fact that we talk about it being on a blockchain is really kind of important because then we get into what Amanda's talking about in terms of the attributes of a blockchain, right? And when you have something that's stored on a blockchain, which is a kind of a distributed ledger or a distributed database that that provides or has certain kinds of qualities to it, you know, immutability, transparency and the like. And when you combine that digital representation of value on this particular filing system, it, it opens the door to different kinds of uses, right? And so I think a lot of people are trying to experiment with what those uses are. Is it just sort of inherent enjoyment of things? You know, the fact that you can create, in effect, a kind of digital baseball card of, of sorts, right? Like, you know, you go, you open up your baseball card collection. You guys may all be too young for this, but I remember this. And you have like a specific baseball card, with a certain kind of serial number and mark to it and everything. It's kind of unique. Can you sort of reproduce that quality in a digital format, right? You know, all the way to you know, uh, use cases of identifying certain kinds of people and or attributes of a person that may have some kind of value, you know, that does someone uh, meet a certain kind of accredited investor standard? If you're for the financiers who are watching the show, you know, like, like, is there a way that you can represent, you know, and if you can put it in a kind of distributed database, you can imagine in on a distributed ledger on a blockchain that, uh, you can start to do interesting things. So like any other databases, um, you know, you can start to program those databases. You can possibly start to program the NFTs themselves. And so you're able to kind of build things on top of this digital representation of value on the blockchain. And that's why software engineers are really interested in it. And that's why people are kind of tinkering and toying with with what those things can do in an effort to solve very real world problems. And the more people tinker, the more you kind of move away from just the inherent sort of, hey, this is kind of cool. I have a neat little, you know, digital baseball card or, or digital artwork or, uh, or or something, or I can do something and divide the, those pieces of artwork, fractionalize it. You can create kinds of investment opportunities to actually other kinds of applications as, as, as well, because that programmability, transparency, and immutability allows people to kind of build and so an NFT is, is increasingly a kind of almost like a building block, a kind of basic architecture now for any range of uh, uh, solutions. And as the more people tinker, the more people are finding new ways to deploy those NFTs to, to kind of solve different kinds of problems based on those uh, core attributes of digital representation of value on a blockchain, leading to programmability, leading ideally to Perfect. problems. Exactly. Great. So actually, I want to talk a little bit about what startups are doing in the space that ties all this together. So actually, maybe Robbie would love to have you share a little bit more about what you're building. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So for background, Omoja creates payments and financing infrastructures for African enterprises across East Africa. Uh, more specifically in terms of payments, enabling pay- digital payments virtually anywhere, particularly for a rural community. So you're talking about being able to send money from a feature phone, or if you don't have a phone at all, an FC card, or if you barely have a phone, you know, it's a really old Android, you know, from WhatsApp, primarily for the purposes of financial inclusion. And there's two main cases for that. The first is humanitarian aid. Um, so obviously over $40 billion of humanitarian aid distributed to 161 million people annually. Unfortunately, that's increasing at 44% year over year. So it'd be considered like an exponential car in terms of market growth, which is unfortunate uh, because it is aid. And that's because geopolitical conflict is increasing, climate crises is increasing, and it's causing, you know, obviously a ripple effect in terms of the need that people have. And then in tangent to that, you also have one of the worst kind of micro, small, medium-sized enterprise financing crises at the same time. So $5 trillion in need on that side. And of course, those two things are very much interrelated in terms of the economic impact they have on rural communities more generally. And so we started with working with, you know, some of the top multinational NGOs on the planet to leverage blockchain technology to distribute money in the form of aid virtually anywhere with 100% transparency. And why that's important is because unfortunately, about 5% of that $40 billion is taken due to fraud. And sometimes that fraud actually happens within the aid organizations themselves. Perfect example, just a few months ago, Give Directly had a million dollars stolen by their Congo office. Like their team stole a million dollars. That increased their fraud rate of all money distributed, which I think was near $100 million, to one of the highest in the world, um, at least known figures. I'm sure that there are other organizations that have higher rates, but known figures on a global stage. And that, that's a huge hit to their reliability as a provider. And so it's helping you know NGOs modernize. But then, of course, on the financing side, it's how can you, how can you merge the financing gap? And the financing gap, for those who aren't familiar, it's just the gap of institutions that don't have access to loans, right? People need access to loans to grow their businesses. How do you bridge that gap by effectively remodeling financial products to make them more interesting to institutional investors? And by merging that gap between institutional trade and something that a small business in Kenya is doing agriculturally, hopefully you boost uh, a great deal of financial inclusion by injecting capital into those communities. And so that's where we're focused on the more infrastructure side of things. But those, those two things are what we focus on. Awesome. Thank you, Robbie. And the customer, your customer is the aid organizations, generally speaking, right? It's not the actual African businesses. Is that right? On our uh, payments product side, it's the actual aid institutions, special aid organizations, nonprofits. On the protocol side, which we're launching this actually this quarter, will be focused on institutional borrowers. So these will be businesses who are credit institutions that provide loans to smallholder farmers or asset-based financing institutions as well. And then that's kind of the the final piece, because now you not only have access to payments, which is nice, but is not very imp- economically impactful. You also have access to financial services more broadly, which can, you know, blend into an array of things later on. Yeah, that's great. Obviously, K Street is an investor in this company, and we we thought it was super interesting back when we first invested, and still today, I think that was two years ago, maybe now, 
So it's really cool to see how it's evolved. But yeah, I mean, Amanda and Chris and everybody, I'm, I'm curious if you're seeing other interesting use cases with startups right now for this type of technology and where it's going. I mean, I think it's really interesting what's happening because I think you're seeing that the evolution of an industry that started very basic, very fun, right? Very kind of speculative. And now it's moving into this next generation of things. And, and one of the things that I was most excited about what Robbie is talking about is the, the use cases, because I think the perception of crypto and blockchain is kind of, I mean, I'll, I'll use the cleaner term for the purposes of, of your, your rating, but crap coins or, you know, whatever people might call them. But the perception of what crypto and blockchain technology is and has been versus where it's going, I think is huge, right? And you have like these foundational underpinnings of where blockchain technology started. But the concept of what we can do in disintermediated finance or, you know, payments and the innovation that's happening in payments, I think people tend to forget that like for too long, traditional finance didn't have a competitor and we just accepted the insanely high rates, like how much money we were losing. And people like Robbie and companies like Robbie's where it's like, no, we can do this better. We can do this more efficiently. There, there really wasn't a motivation for that. So now you're seeing companies that are inventing things and creating processes that are so unique and so interesting, whether it's carbon credits, but, but also things like, you know, I, I, there's a project that I saw that was really cool where there's a group in Texas that's using NFTs and blockchain technology. To Chris's point earlier, people think of NFTs like the apes and, and art. And that is a, that is a use case of a much broader, more important technology. But they're using it for things like kids in the social services system who don't have control over their records, but move around a lot to be able to actually have control and ownership over their identity and their case history, right? And how do you move that? And we're seeing this for healthcare records, right? The concept of what if you move around companies? What if you move around states? Like there are companies that are working on globalized credit where it's very difficult if you move from one country to another to establish credit and how do you port over the concept of credit? And so, you know, it's, it's unfortunate that I think people do a disservice sometimes for malicious reasons, sometimes for ignorance purposes. But the idea that this technology is just somehow speculative investment is so wildly off. And the number of projects that are really being built for the purposes of making the world better or frankly trying to save the world from what it is, um, is, is I think one of the inspirational things that keeps us all in the space excited and hopeful. Yeah, I, I think some of the most useful uh, use cases, I mean, you know, a huge, huge, huge fan of Robbie's work. Moja is, is killing it. It's, it's one of those great companies because, you know, when people see that work, it makes it much more concrete. And I think it is hard sometimes to talk in theory about things. <laughs> Ergo, our very first question is like, well, what's an NFT? Okay, let me hold up for a second and, you know, have one or two running starts. To then get into, okay, how is this playing itself out in the real world, you know, for, for real world ecosystem challenges? And so when you get into questions, though, about like, again, the fact that you are creating a digital representation of value on a blockchain and what kinds of things are blockchains good at generally, they're pretty good at keeping track of things, right? You know, and, and therefore, when you want to attack issues like supply chain problems or, you know, for medical records, you know, when you move from one particular medical services provider to another, because a lot of our medicals, particularly in the United States, are, you know, you have a private system with medical service providers who are not integrated in terms of the provision of services. And therefore, you have sort of these disconnected databases, you know, how can you make that more efficient? 
um, Amanda I took, you know, sort of enlisted a lot of them. Uh, one of the the most obvious and one of the most interesting ones, as, as I know that she has uh, seen up, up close, is again, you know, when it comes to that AMLKYC space, you know, you do see lots of companies who are trying to crack the code of demonstrating compliance with, you know, for AML know your customer purposes that are required under most laws in the United States and their Bank Secrecy Act and, and elsewhere, and trying to figure out, well, how can you do that in a way that kind of lowers the compliance costs, lowers the compliance burdens, because it can be very extensive, you know, filing different kinds of reports for the Treasury Department for even um, sanctions purposes. And when you have smaller institutions, you know, because everybody is running through the same compliance costs, it's almost a kind of regressive tax on smaller financial institutions. So in the United States, if you're a rural bank, if you're an MDI, a minority depository institution, uh, if you're a community bank, you know, some of those compliance costs are just disproportionately large vis-a-vis -vis your capital base as, you know, for a larger financial institution. So, you know, are there different ways for those kinds of companies, for financial technology companies, you know, specialized financial institutions, kind of get into the provision of financial services in an effective way that can lower their compliance burden. And NFTs for those kinds of institutions all the way to DeFi are increasingly being explored. Like some of your biggest mainstay decentralized finance companies are trying to experiment with NFTs as a way of fracking individuals without necessarily giving up some of their anonymity but to do so in more creative ways to also demonstrate to financial authorities that they're not inadvertently cycling or funneling, uh, you know, funds tied to illicit or illegal activities through their, through their infrastructure. And, that, and, that, and that's a use case that I like, you know, maybe it's also because I'm a nerd, you know, securities law guy, right? But, you know, th that is, is, is certainly, you know, the use case that I most frequently in, encounter. So actually, on on that note of you being a nerdy securities uh, law expert, let's talk about what's happening overseas and and how this will impact the U.S. I mean, I know this is a super controversial topic, and there's a lot of viewpoints on it. But um, yeah, why don't we why don't we start there? So so just in terms of like the international regulation, I mean, I've and I have talked uh, sort of uh, uh, bilaterally with 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 Robbie because you know he's obviously quite literally operating in multiple sort of parts of the world and, and, and certainly uh, in Africa, you know, it's, it's a very interesting question as well. You know, like, like what exactly do the rules look like? Just this morning, I actually had a, a call uh, or at least an email about a, a certain discussion going on in one of our big uh, international regulatory bodies, right? Uh, you know, right now, uh, every jurisdiction or all of the major jurisdictions are trying to figure out how to classify crypto assets. Um, uh, international coordination is not really possible if even at a country level, there's no consensus as to what uh, definition should be provided. The European Union is kind of up out front um, with something called Mika, which provides a framework uh, uh, for crypto assets, um, at, at least for their uh, disclosure obligations and, 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 and some of the prudential rules. Uh, the United States is probably on the other end, not just because, well, well pr primarily because people are still debating whether or not we have a framework at all. So you have some people who are saying we have a framework, that framework applies 
in, entirely to all crypto assets, um, you know, which is positions staked out by the SEC. But in the United States, and I gave a big talk to the IMF, you know, and I said, you know, the, the most interesting chapter, chapter one being the industry, chapter two being the regulators. And I said, people don't understand that the most interesting chapter is going to be chapter three, which is going to be the courts. And the courts are, are, are clearly um, introducing to varying degrees, uh, more and less certainty in, in that question as to what exactly falls within the, the, the perimeter of, 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 of the existing regulatory authorities. And then you have the political question going back and forth. So the United States is kind of in its own unique, uh, hellscape <laughs> when it comes to, uh, you know, clarity of, of, you know, what is, you know, a, a crypto asset and who's regulating what, um, and, and the like. And, and, and then you have all the jurisdictions in between. And you have uh, uh, right now a very robust conversation, which which does uh, uh, impact the ability for different authorities to come up with you know cross border rules. So um, and you have some parts of the world that are very eager and trying to stake out a position as perhaps being a location that is welcoming um, to blockchain based technologies, including crypto assets, but digital assets more generally, whether or not it be stable coins, whether or not it be uh, NFTs and metaverse uh, related activities. And then you have some who just want to, for lack of a better word, have rules. And if you come, great. If you don't come, you know, that's fine too. And then, and then you have at least jurisdictions that are perceived to be at, at the very minimum, you know, much more hostile uh, uh, to sort of blockchain-based uh, commercial activities. Um, and so the, the international question is, is, is muddy, but um, industry and developments and use cases are continuing. And that is definitely creating some pressure, even in those jurisdictions that may be more reluctant to make rules because they think if you make rules and it le legitimizes things or like, it's creating pressure, both because you're getting sometimes very productive use cases, but also even for their the pursuit of their own mission, are like, well, if we don't do anything here, uh, you know, we're we're not literally we're not doing what we're being what we've been charged or tasked to do by our home legislators. Yeah, so yeah, I mean, this is a really oh, go ahead, Amanda. No, I was just, just going to add something because I think something that Chris kind of touches on that's really important that people forget is that in the past, the U.S. was very good when innovation could run wild and free like, 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 a, like, a, like a girl frolicking in a field in a meadow, right? And that was fine, right? Because it was largely unregulated industries in the sense that when we had Section 230, you want to create a Facebook, you want to create an Amazon, you want to create a Google. The big thing there was... It wasn't financial services. And the problem with everything that we're doing now is that tech was really, really good at moving fast and breaking things until it ran into the fin part of fintech. That's this it. is the issue, right? Is that for the first time, the American structure of government with far too many agencies, with way too, with way too much competing, with personalities that are far more concerned about who they are, what they look like, and how much jurisdiction and what the size of their fiefdom is. Everything about American regulation is built to lose the war on digital assets and the war for Web3. Everything about where we've gotten in the last 100 years is the opposite of fit-for-purpose regulation. It's the opposite of nimbleness. It's the opposite of building a regulatory process that allows you to innovate as fast as you're building. So for the first, like, like America is at a 
massive disadvantage right now because we are watching in real time. It basically, for lack of a better word, scrap the bed on digital assets regulation because of the structure that we've had. And now you're seeing the countries that are like, hey, 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 turns out this is where we can rise and shine. And they are rising at a level where maybe one individual country against a fat, lazy, out of shape, but we can't do anything. But you get 30 little scrappy kids on a playground against a fat, out of shape, lazy bully who has not kind of drank their spinach coffee for the last 50 years and just thought anti-intellectualism was going to be a really good strategy. And now you're seeing exactly what's happening on a global stage when globalization plays out is all these countries are getting together and saying, you know, we might not agree on many things, but there is actually one thing we all agree on. And that's we want off that U.S. dollar, off, off, off that Mm -hmm. U.S. dollar. And we want the ability to move ahead without the United States. And the United States is just sitting here thinking, well, that's just not possible because we're the U.S. dollar. And the last person who thought that was the British pound. And I'll tell you how that went for the U.K. And I think they would say, "Ooh, watching this hubris 100 years later, there's something validating about that. (laughs) It's definitely inherited for sure. Like, I I, and I and I and I'm actually this this is a very beautiful kind of trio uh, in terms of the thought process, because I can add a use case to this, you know, to your point. Um, you know, you look at protocols, protocols for those who are unaware, it's just systems, applications on chain, right? That is what a protocol is. And um, so there's applications, right, that provide crowdsource lending, right? Crowdsource lending to business is not a new idea that exists in the Web2 world as well, right? Kiva is a perfect example for those who need something to, you know, latch their minds to. And, um, you know, they have the great idea of, you know, how, why would we, you know, crowdsource capital or we can invest in emerging market, you know, loans to businesses. Um, so also kind of an interesting idea of how you can take a loan, you know, that was in a private market and then you could fractionalize it, you could securitize it in a way that now it's more tradable, more liquid. You could do a lot of different things with it. Um, and over the last two or three years, you know, some of those startups, you know, raised tens of millions, not, you know, dozens of millions of dollars, uh, facilitated billions of dollars of loans, all USD based, including in emerging markets. And what we're seeing now in a down market, in a de-dollarizing market with high inflation and increasing, you know, Fed rate is, is that these, you know, institutional bars in these different countries do not want USD loans and they didn't want USD loans before. Right. But, you know, because the market was up, it was more acceptable because interest rates were down. But now when interest rates are up, they're like, no, we're not taking, you know, I'm in a Nigerian business. I make my money in Naira. I'm, I'm paying a moving target. It's like it's and for those who are, you know, unaccustomed to, you know, how inflation, especially USD inflation affects other countries. Imagine getting a loan today and setting the interest rate at 5% and then next week it's 10%. And then the week after it's 15%. That is literally what's happening. Um, and I would say that as these other countries begin to realize Dubai uh, or Dubai, the United Arab Emirates as a country, but Dubai particularly as a jurisdiction, they start to realize this. They you know, put themselves in a position to be financial havens, as we've seen the Caribbean countries make themselves the tax havens of the world, right? By innovating more you know, open financial regulations. But what we're starting to see in terms of competitiveness, when countries de-dollarize and you can do things in other ways is that you can now, and this is one of the things that we're working on, you can now purchase, like invest in an emerging market bond that is denominated in their currency and 
also create a financial product with it that hedges the currency risk, right? And so for those who are unaccustomed, that means you can invest anywhere in the world and limit your risk as if you were investing domestically. And when you're able to do that and the other countries have the financial regulation and the U.S. doesn't, guess where not just the technology is going, guess where the investment is going institutionally? It's going to the higher yield, lower risk areas. Um, so no, I absolutely agree. It is a huge issue. And I, and I really do think like if the United States can understand that it is better to denominate DeFi in USD, you know, via dollarization, you know, by, by stable coins rather than going the hardline securitization route, uh, I, I, I think that they'll have a chance at maintaining hegemony. Um, otherwise, there's, there's no way. Yeah, I mean, you know, you know I, it, because I, I've been around the block a, a number of times, like, and there are different cycles to this conversation. Um, you know, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I can remember, you know, when there were certain banks in a certain European country that were fined by, uh, by the United States, by the Treasury Department. I can remember, this was a decade plus ago, having conversations with the senior managers of that bank saying, well, you know, we got a call later from our national authorities saying, well, why were you doing the transactions in dollars in the first place? <laughs> which, which, I, which I thought was very fascinating, you know? And, and, and then, you know, the, this, this concept of what does economic power and statecraft mean? Well, you know, the dollar, to Amanda's point, has been used as sort of this vehicle for doing that. But once you start to make anything, you know, basically being able to create a, 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 a payment create your own payment system and or to create a vehicle for moving value in ways that are not U.S. denominated, either one of those two things start to move you or to at least add optionality to individuals uh, that makes the switching costs of moving off of the U.S. system to be much less than they have been historically. And that 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 opens up um, a lot of risk uh, uh, to the United States in terms of its own economic statecraft and economic power and eventually its economy because then people can just kind of do can, can move wherever they want and there is this really weird world right because you know not to be too philosophical but we do have the deglobalization going on from a trade perspective right you know like we're developing little spheres of influence and and, and the like right you know uh, reshoring or really leaving, for example, China and going more to say Vietnam and back to Mexico or something, right? But at the same time, from a digital perspective, right, you're you're almost getting a kind of hyper internationalization that's being enabled because you know you can kind of cut off the internet, you know, in certain kinds of countries, but that's really really hard to do. And the, the values of different countries in terms of either free speech or 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 any other number of things kind of limit your ability to do that. So you still have this like globalization narrative continuing apace, you know, uh, especially when it comes to payments and the movement of value, right? And, and that is both opportunity for certain um, entrepreneurs. Uh, it's risk if you are the uh, if you're the legacy system and you're and 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 you don't adapt, right? And you know, you can say that as from the United States as a country, but. You know, all kinds of financial institutions, you know, if your legacy, you know, you can, you live off of your size for but so long. And then eventually either to Amanda's point, people gang up on you or just people just create a better, a better product, you know, and, 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 you know, um, now the industry to, to Amanda's point, you know, when you get that fin point, 
The one thing I always tell people in the United States and even internationally usually is that when you use other people's money, there's some kind of rule in law, right? That somewhere, it may be banking, it may be consumer protection, it may be whatever, you know, whatever, right? right? But, it, but, is, you know, it is not the production of widgets. When you are dealing with people's money, this is the hard thing to explain. You, you are not making a widget. And, and that is a, a lesson that's been very hard learned, I think, um, you know, it, it, frankly, for the crypto industry. But it's a, it's a lesson that, you know, fintech learned a generation before and obviously a lesson that banks learned far in advance. But whenever, you know, and I always, you know, I say to my students, I tell it to, you know, folks, advising, like, you know, I know that you're caught up in like a particular issue, maybe as a security, as a commodity, whatever. But I just want you to know, like, regardless as to how that works out, whenever you are playing with other people's money, there is a rule involved. There is law involved. So, so don't think like everything is just kind of get out of jail free card. Now, the question is, how can you create a system of rules that make you administ you know, from an administrative law perspective, like flexible from in, you know, from if you're a smart entrepreneur like Robbie and you're already going to be productive, like how do you lower the compliance costs for those individuals and how do you ferret out, you know, your bad actors, right? You know, it, and if, but you're not willing to ask that question every decade or so when the technology changes or maybe even, I don't know, every five years, you know, God forbid. You know, then you're going to find yourself um, one or two or three or four steps behind the curve. But if you're paid and you and you know who to invest in, uh, then obviously you know, like like like. Well, no, it's true. It's like like the winners and losers. But like, you know, I I think a lot of people in the space would rather that winning felt good as opposed to like you know having to sort of see this this asymmetry between the ability of the administrative state, particularly in the United States, but even in other countries, you know, to be able to keep in touch and up to, up to the job um, uh, of, of, of regulating and policing, but also enabling the kinds of things that lead to pro-social outcomes. And unfortunately, this is exactly why we don't invest very frequently in the space. We would love to. But it's like all these things have been changing so rapidly and the, the implications and the impacts of them on the companies. I mean, and even if you talk about uh, the the Mika thing in Europe, it's like, good thing we're not in Europe. Otherwise, this would be the problem for us. Right. So like, you know, it, it's it's kind of a shame. I just hope that eventually it gets sorted out well enough that the technology, the underlying technology, which is fantastic, can can flourish and can actually make, you know, make finance more efficient for everyone. Well, I think that's one of the reasons why I think this is just the vibe that I've gotten into talking to people. And in terms of like, and Chris, I'd love your, your opinion on this, but I think the next hot topic and in investment that everybody is like sees on the horizon is red tech, right? Because you've been building all the, you, you spend all this money building this beautiful Tesla. And I know Chris and I've had this conversation, like you oh. built these beautiful Teslas that you put on cobblestone roads and you thought that was going to go well, right? Like, by the way, it doesn't matter how good the car is if you literally have no infrastructure to run it on, or worse, infrastructure that's going to ruin the product that you just built. So you're yeah, seeing but, all these. Yeah, or, yeah, yeah. Or if you have like this beautiful, like you know, um, you know, DeLorean that can go back in time, but you don't have the flux capacitor, right? You know, or if you have exactly. to like, right, because <laughs> because I am here. I am here to nerd out with you to any level that you want to get to. I am here for it, like a hundred percent. 
Bob t-shirt on. It's like, you have to find it, you know, be happy. It's not like White Castle or something. I mean, but at the end of the day, it's, it's you know, you can have, you can have, you can have your, uh, you know, your, 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 your wonderful car with the greatest rims and seats and everything, plush cushions, et cetera. But if like, you're not meeting the admissions test for that vehicle, you know, you're not going to be able to pull it out and, and, and to roll it around. Right. So, so the, the question is, you know, and, and where are the industry, uh, you know, again, you know, it's a question of huge, huge opportunity, right? Uh, uh, right cross or people who don't do it is like, 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 how do you, you know, build, uh, part of that infrastructure to enable the technology to work well to, and again, to enable the founders yeah. to be able to onboard, uh, clients and use, you know, real frankly, to, to, to comply in a way that is as efficient as, as, as possible. Right. And, and that is, you know, that's a major, te- of course, it also does inf- require to your point page, you know, rules, right. Or, uh, uh, because otherwise then you have to ask really expensive lawyers, where do they think the rules will be? Right. Uh, and, and, and that, you know, then. Enforces- and even your most it's expensive lawyer right? here is giving a best guess, right? Like we don't yeah. like. Yeah. Even all of the best lawyers that I talk to, you're paying a lot of money for what's essentially the best, best educated guess. guess, right? Which, I, I, and, and in fairness to some of them, it was their best guess at the time. And then all of a sudden, we'll look, the SEC just like took a hard left there and nobody saw that coming. And their best guess cost you a lot of money and turned out to be wrong yeah. and not to their fault. But you just sometimes can't tell when somebody's going to take a hard left. Didn't see that coming. And now we spent a lot of money on a best guess that turns out not to be as as useful as you thought it would be this Which, this is the from like the the operator perspective in terms of exactly what you all are talking to like this is why some of the largest entities that are in the crypto industry are domiciled within the most uh speculative or kind of sneaky looking entities right because they're trying to find the most you know legal wiggle room that they can possibly have uh, barring any new law coming into play that could completely upset their business and also think that if we continue this route we're going to lose i mean the the united states is going to lose its marketing position within the web3 ecosystem right now you know as much as the u.s is doing some of the largest companies in the blockchain space are american companies right um but that is very quickly changing um and and you know those who aren't aware of me, as fast as cryptocurrency moves, money moves into some of these businesses. And we've literally seen multi-billion dollar giants fall as quick as they came. So there really is no, there's no time where, oh, the incumbents are going to stay the incumbents. It's not that time. Uh, I think that that will probably be a decade from now, uh, if so. Um, and so, yeah, and I, I absolutely agree. But, you know, I, I, I think, though, that, um, you know, the expertise in the sector is still with the sector. You know, I think that the, well, some regulatory bodies in some jurisdictions and even within jurisdictions that can differ dramatically, you know, have more expertise than others and a willingness to deploy that expertise than others. Right. So that means that, you know, there is a space for for industry leadership, including in the United States. And it's going to be essential. And, you know, again, a lesson that the fintech industry learned that the crypto industry uh, is learning slowly, 
is that if you don't do it, someone else is going to do it for you. And when someone does it for you, you know, it's not going to be, you know, you're not going to sit around and, and, you know, it's not going to be as efficient as you would like. It's not going to be as fit for purpose as you may like. It may not be. And, and, and frankly, it's because you didn't get involved. And so, so, uh, and usually when people do get involved, it's because of crisis or because something goes wrong and someone, you know, so there's a certain political impetus to kind of, you know, sometimes there's a impetus to act quickly, whatever it is. And, and that then, you know, creates a situation where the rulemaking is not necessarily as informed as it should be. And it can also create incentives on the part of the regulator not to talk to industry because of the bad acts that, that, that happened before. And it, creates this kind of, you know, this, this vicious, uh, cycle. So, you know, um, it, it's very fascinating because, uh, you, you have the drivers for a lot of opportunity, you know, to, to create, you know, compliance enhancing, uh, tools, uh, you know, regulation, uh, as, as I think we've probably all talked in different ways amongst each other. It's not like, you know, it, it's not like regulation won't come here, right? Like uh, in the United States. Oh, it's again. coming. Yeah, it's definitely coming. <laughs> right? You know, it's a question as to like what is the direction where people are 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 heading, and and can you structure your operations in a way that begin to approximate that, such that when they come along, not only are you not falling behind, but you'll actually end up ahead. Um, of other people who are not planning accordingly, right? And I know I've talked a lot, but I did want to say one really cool or interesting thing, you know, that I talked to even in the United States is between, let's say, East-West kind of um, uh, ideas and people talk about how much money is on the sidelines. You know, the, 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 the money that's on the sidelines is, is a lot of it's in traditional finance, right? In the trash yep. flies. It's over in Wall Street, you know? And, and those folks are highly regulated. And therefore, they're going to be taking their culture of compliance as well as their, you know, billion dollar balance sheets and working in a way that will structurally change, change the, the, the industry. And so, you know, again, you're, if you're you trying ready? to, if you're trying to be the winner, those people who are having these kinds of conversations are going to be way, way, way ahead of those who don't, you know, and that's just so. Yeah. So, and this is leads me in perfectly into our last topic, which is how can founders and, and investors, right? Like I think of, of myself sort of still as a founder, but how can we be engaged with those technologies and what's going on um, efficiently and also just like set ourselves up operationally, like all the founders that are listening, how can they, how can they be thinking about this so that they're ready, right? Like be ready when that, when that moment starts to happen. Yeah, I, I can talk to how kind of we we do that. Um, you know, so one, like, you know, you have to draw your scenarios. And and this is, I think, something that founders should do anyway, right? You do it in the context of fundraising. You do it in the context of uh, regulation, especially if you're in an emerging technology, um, so that you're just prepared as to what strategy you're going to enact given the particular scenario and how defensible, you know, are some of these things that are upcoming. Uh, because if they aren't, then that means you likely need to pivot, right? Or just rebase if if you're if, if that part of your company is doing well, especially Web three companies, maybe just domicile somewhere else, you know? Um, because you know that in doing so, you'll buy you know time on the regulatory front um, until you can afford the lawyers to do whatever is necessary, right? 
um, in the context um, of emerging markets in particular. I mean, one thing that we've done is, and this was kind of like an internal project just to help us scale this, was effectively taking all of the sentiment and the news reports on the different actions being taken across these different countries, including the central bank notices, and forming like dynamic summaries as to the state of policy within that particular nation. Um, and initially I was doing this manually. We eventually created like an AI script to help us collect a lot of this information and kind of automate a lot of that process. Uh, but it, it still, at least it gives you a reference as to, okay, I know now that despite all the negative press on Nigeria and Kenya in the context of cryptocurrency, I know that their regulatory environment is not focused on DeFi at all. Right. Their regulatory environment's focused on secondary speculation, you know, potential securities, right, and capital gain stacks. And even that, you know, gives you a bit of time in those nations, right? Now, if they were about to put out a DeFi framework that said that everyone had to pay as much as people have to pay for a payment service provider license in Nigeria, which is like $250,000, then you need to leave that country, right? Because you're likely not going to be able to survive depending on the size of the company. Um, you know, and so I, I, I do think that like, you know, to Chris's point, right, and Amanda has also said this as well, reg tech will help scale down those exponential costs on coming in environments that react too slowly. Um, because I, I don't think any company funded less than $10 million, like in the direction that the United States is going in terms of regulatory maintenance, they, you, you, you couldn't exist legally. It would be impossible, um, no. you know, just from legal expenses and certifications alone. So, yeah, you should really publish that 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 information somewhere. I feel like if that, that exists, oh, a yeah. lot of people would read it regularly. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, hey, it's on Emoja's website. Hey, Emoja's is it? Yep. Yeah, yeah, All right, noted. Website. <laughs> awesome. Well, that's a wrap. Thank you, guys. I feel like we could go forever on these topics. Thank you so much for tuning in. And if you enjoyed it, please leave us a rating and review. And don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. Thanks.